Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, we have been reading the story of the first Christians together from the book of Acts, and this morning we're just going to pick up where we left off uh, at the beginning of Acts 9. So I'm going to read Acts 9, verses 1 through 19 for us, and you can follow along uh, in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Acts 9. And I just want to say before I read it, I don't uh, want to take for granted um, our familiarity with this story. So the Saul that we're going to read about um, is better known to the church as Paul, the apostle, the guy who wrote uh, half of the New Testament. Saul is his Jewish name, Paul his Greek name. Uh, So that's who we're reading about. I don't want that to be a spoiler for the story, (laughs) but I want to be clear. So let me read from Acts 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me to you so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, what we always ask, and that would be that this word that we have read, uh, that we have heard together, that we're going to talk about together, that this word would point us to the word who is incarnate, our elder brother, Jesus, who's seated with you in our flesh, praying for us, that you would point us to him and how much you love us through him and in him, and that we be changed by that love, by that grace. 
And we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, when our our youngest daughter, Cora, was about three years old, uh, Allison and I were talking with her uh, about what she wanted to be when she grew up. Uh, Now, that's not the most sensible thing uh, to ask a three-year-old, I guess, but it was in the context of talking to other, our other girls about it, our two other girls about, you know, what they wanted to be when they grew up, so we weren't going to leave her out. And we got the usual thing from the older girls, you know, dolphin trainer, ballerina, stuff like that. Um, but it was Cora's decision, Cora's choice that stuck out to us as a strange choice, an almost inscrutable choice. Cora, with no guile at all, insisted that she wanted to be a zebra when she grew up. She's going to be a zebra. Now, our working theory was that she got our question confused with the question, what do you want to be for Halloween? Um, Maybe that's what happened, but she stuck with her odd cross-species choice for a long time. And I bring that up because there is an even more inscrutable choice, odd choice made in the story that we just read together. It's a choice that none of us would have seen coming, not one in the story, not us as readers of the story, and it is Ananias who points out this odd choice to God, who is in fact the one who made the strange, inscrutable choice. God says, go and find this guy Saul of Tarsus, and Ananias said, it sounded like you said, go find Saul. Do you mean the threats and murder guy? The one who has done so much evil to your saints? Are you sure that's who you want me to go see, God? It seems like an odd choice. And God assures Ananias that he's heard him correctly. And here's the truth, church. These kind of inscrutable choices, choices no one would have ever seen coming, they're at the heart of the story of God and his world. And that's good news, not just for Saul, not just for Ananias. That's good news for people like us, too. So his first lines go, the one that Luke uses to start this story, is about as captivating as it gets. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. This is a man with really, really, really bad intentions. We should not be mistaken. This is the narrative of an enemy. We don't know much about Saul before that encounter on the road, but everything that we do know about Saul before that encounter on the road exposes him as a very bad guy. The first time we hear Saul's name is at the story of the stoning of Stephen on ginned-up charges of blasphemy. We read about that together two weeks ago. Saul, you might remember, was not throwing rocks that day. He was the guy who held the coats of the people who were throwing rocks that day. And maybe you remember the incredibly compelling way that Luke told us about Stephen's death. With his last breath, this is Stephen's prayer, with the last words that come out of his mouth, he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. With his dying breath, Stephen asked God to show mercy on his executioners, mercy on the people who were there that day. It's interesting. It's beautiful. And because it's so beautiful, that's one of the reasons why the next lines in the story can make your blood run cold, because Luke says Saul approved of his execution. Saul was glad he was dead. Saul was glad Stephen 
was dead. Something in Saul ignited that day. Something clicked in his brain and in his heart and in his body that day. Something violent, something active, something cruelly resourceful clicked in Saul that day. All the formative streams of his life come together at the martyrdom of Stephen. And it's like he figures out what he wants his life to be, the shape of his life. From that day forward, he knows what it's going to be. Luke says Saul started ravaging the church, dragging women and men off to prison. Saul's plan is to reproduce what happened to Stephen again and again and again and again until there are no more Christians on the face of the earth, until there are no more ways that those people can influence anyone. That's his plan. That's what he wants to do with his life. He is on the leading edge of this great persecution that Luke says scattered the first Christians out of Jerusalem in fear for their lives. And here's the thing about Saul. He wasn't some mindless street thug. He wasn't brainwashed by some puppet master. We know from other sources, we know from his own writings, that he was highly educated, that he was supremely intelligent, that he was deeply literate in the scriptures. He knew the story of the Old Testament like the back of his hand. He knew the story of his people like the back of his hand. He's also a strict Pharisee. They were like a pressure group in first century Israel. They had enormous influence on the socio-political makeup of Israel in his day. That meant that he was an ultra-nationalist of the most fanatical kind. He was powerful. He was compelling. He was the kind of person who had the wits, who had the savvy, who had the influence to get things done. And he was getting things done. He had gone to the high priest and gotten letters of extradition that allowed him to raid the synagogues at Damascus. And if he found anyone there, any woman, any man who said they followed Jesus, they could be arrested and bound and brought back to Jerusalem for trial, presumably for blasphemy that would lead to their execution, just like it had for Stephen. So, Saul and his hit squad hit the road. Damascus was about 150 miles from Jerusalem. It probably took about a week to make this journey. And somewhere on that dusty road, right near the end of their journey, Saul meets his maker. Luke says that a blinding light from heaven shone on Saul, and it caused him to fall to the ground. And then this voice comes that must have made his skin crawl. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Of course, this was overwhelming. I don't doubt for a moment this was incredibly overwhelming, that his body was racked with a misunderstanding all around, that there was no way he could begin to even process what was happening in this moment other than being aware of the broad strokes of it. 
His deep familiarity with the story of Scripture would have pointed him, even without knowing it, instinctually to the truth that this is some kind of theophany. This is somehow God on the ground talking to him. And so he asks, who are you, Lord? And it's hard to imagine the shock, the horror that Saul must have felt when he heard the answer. I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. It's me. Jesus' answer to Saul was profoundly unsettling, profoundly life-altering. It's not a stretch at all to say it was history-altering. The meaning of Jesus' answer, it's me. The meaning of that answer didn't only matter to Paul. It matters deeply for people like us, too. So let me suggest three of the probably many things that flow out of that very moment, that very answer, the meaning of that answer, it's me. And let me say something about what they mean to us. First is maybe the most obvious one that Saul realizes in that moment that he has been really, really, really wrong about Jesus, which is another way of saying He still has a lot to learn. He still has a lot to learn about this God that he thinks he has been fighting for his whole life. Does he know him at all? He's still got a lot to learn. He's got a lot to learn about this world that he's living in and the story of the world, the narrative of the world that he's living in. Does he even understand it at all anymore? He has a lot to learn (laughs) I mean, Saul realized that Jesus isn't dead. I mean, up until that moment, he was certain that death by crucifixion was exactly the kind of thing that a pretender like Jesus should have gotten as the end of his life. But now he's alive. Somehow he's alive. And that means that Saul is not living in the world that he thought he was living in. He's living in a new world, an entirely new creation. The story is very different than the story as he imagined it. And that means that Jesus is not who Saul thought he was. Listen to what Saul, Paul, wrote many years later. All right, He wrote this to his friends in Corinth, and I don't doubt for a minute that it was this moment, this blinding light, this appearance of Jesus, the resurrected one to him, that Paul has in his, minds when he, in his mind when he writes this to his friends. He says, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, the the creator God, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's a way of saying something that Paul will say again and again and again in his letters, trying to get at it in so many different ways. What Paul means is if you want to know who God is, if you want to experience the beauty and the significance and the weight of God himself in your life, then you're going to have to look at the face of Jesus because that's how people like us know him. And that's as true now as it was then. Jesus is how people like you and me It's how we come to know God. He is the way that we see who God really is. 
He's the way that we begin to understand the story of this world and our place inside of it. So it's not a stretch, I know, to assume that there are some of us here this morning who are just trying to figure out the mystery that is life and existence. We're trying to figure out what it is that we're here for and why are we here and what does it mean. There are some of us here this morning for, who are looking for something, groping for something, someone, whatever it is, bigger than ourselves. We're wondering if there is more to living this existence than the stuff we can see with our eyes, than the stuff that we can touch with our hands. There are others of us here this morning hoping that there's something out there, that there's anything out there that could begin to do something about the brokenness we feel in our own selves. Hoping, daring to hope that there is someone, something out there that has something solid to say, real to say about the brokenness that we see in the world around us. And we were daring to hope it can be fixed. Well, to anyone who finds themselves hoping these things, thinking these things, let me say, look at the face of Jesus Christ and you will definitely find what you are looking for. Because he is how we know who God really is. He is how we know who we really are and what we have been made for in this world. I am the way, Jesus says, the truth. I'm the life. The second thing that flows out of that moment on the road comes from the strangeness, I think, the strangeness of Jesus' answer to Saul's question, who are you? He says, who are you? And Jesus says, I'm Jesus, the one that you're persecuting. That's strange, right? It's strange because Paul thought for sure that Jesus was dead <laughs> and that the ones that he was persecuting were just followers of Jesus. But Jesus comes along and confuses the story. He confuses everything that Paul, Saul, knows to be true of the world. Yeah, you've been persecuting Christians, but Jesus makes it clear. If you mess with them, you mess with me. Jesus so deeply identifies with people like us. He is so intimately tied to us that he has no problem, church, no problem at all saying that what happens to us happens to him. The first Christians were being persecuted, but it is Jesus who says he is being persecuted. And Paul eventually, Saul, figures this out. And in the New Testament, he piles up metaphor after metaphor, along with all the other writers of the New Testament, to try and get at this intimate connection that we have, that we're his bride, that we're his body, that he's the vine, that we're the branches, that we're the building, and he is the chief cornerstone of the building. Here's another way Saul will eventually say it in one of his letters. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Our lives are hidden. We're covered up. We're wrapped up in Christ's life. So listen, what does that mean? I know that there are some of us here this morning who are, who are suffering, who are in some kind of physical pain 
or disease or we're experiencing some kind of physical loss or even some kind of emotional pain or mental anguish or suffering and it's unsettling everything in our lives. I know that there are some of us here this morning, of course, who are facing something that makes us feel afraid. (laughs) Maybe it makes us feel completely terrified and paralyzed. There are others of us here this morning who are mourning the loss of a relationship, one that's broken or is in the process of breaking. There are some of us here this morning who are mourning the loss of someone we loved. I don't know all of the specifics for you in your life, but I do know this. If you follow Jesus, I am absolutely certain that he is walking through it with you. There is no other way to be with him. There is no other way for him to be with us than to be completely, intimately, fully tied together. What I mean is this, church, you are not alone. You are not alone. And that's the truth. And part of being a Christian is learning to practice the presence of Jesus when we feel these things. In the middle of pain and suffering and fear. In the middle of loss. Learning to practice that he is the vine and we are the branches. And we believe that's true. And we live into the truth of that by the way that we pray by the choices that we make. We live into the truth of it by remembering that we are actually also tied to one another, that we're not alone, and we can stop pretending we are. We are not alone. And I know sometimes, you know, we're just afraid. And sometimes we're just sad, and sometimes we are in pain, and we're not able to pray or do much practicing of anything. And he is enough then, too. Because that's his promise, that's his invitation. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So there's another thing that flows directly out of this moment, and it is really, really good news for Saul, and it's good news for you, and it's good news for me. And that's what Jesus says next. (laughs) Jesus says, rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what to do there. Now, I know that sounds a little bit mundane to us, like it's just some kind of direction. (laughs) But I don't doubt that for Saul, it was one of the sweetest things he'd ever heard in his life. (laughs) Because it meant he had a future. It meant there was something more for him, that he wasn't just finished on the spot. There was a future for Saul. It meant that he could be redeemed. For probably the first time in his life, Saul is actually experiencing in himself words that I I don't doubt he had memorized as a little kid. Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. It was our Old Testament lesson, Psalm 36. Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. In that moment on the road, he is experiencing the great grace of God in Jesus. And he doesn't know it then, but that grace is going to be the animating power for the rest of his life. It's going to, do, it's going to be the thing behind everything else that he does. 
Church Saul, he was not a good man. He was not. He did a lot of evil. And he wasn't out there on the road troubled in conscience. He wasn't out there on the road wondering what he could do to put the pieces of his life together, wondering if he could be forgiven. (laughs) And Jesus met him with his blinding grace anyway. And we shouldn't think for a minute that that grace was cheap. We shouldn't think for a minute like it was no big deal because Jesus named the injustice clearly. He said, you are persecuting me. Saul, your hands are stained with the blood of martyrs. God was most definitely opposed to what Saul was doing. And in a million years, church, we'll never get to the end of the beauty of it. But there it is for us to look on and wonder. Jesus, the victim of Saul's crimes, forgives him. Even before Saul had the presence of mind to ask for it even before he could have even dreamed that he could receive it. He has a future. As Paul would put it so vividly later in one of his letters, while we were enemies, God reconciled us to himself through the death of his son. I mean... Church, when Paul wrote that to his friends in Rome, he wasn't lining out some abstract piece of esoteric theology. He was just telling them the story of his life. Unadorned. It happened to me on the road. It happened to me. It doesn't make any sense. It is inscrutable. It is inexplicable. Saul has just joined this long line of reprobates and louts and cowards and liars and cheats and fakes and betrayers and deniers for whom the God of all things happily, joyfully lays down his life. He's done it again. He has gone after another lost sheep again. (laughs) And in a million years, this is not the script I would write. This is not the story of the world that Aaron would write. We would never write this story, but there it is for us to wonder on forever and ever. The true story of the world. It's the best thing that any of us have ever heard. I'll tell you, it's the best thing that I have ever heard because it means there is hope for me. It means there's hope for me. It means that there is hope that I can be forgiven not just once a long time ago, but that I can be forgiven every single day. It means there's hope that I can change, that I can become a different person. There's hope that I can turn into a person slowly, as long as it takes, but that I can change into a person who can love other people with the same inscrutable, inexplicable love with which I have been loved. There's hope for me. This means there is hope for people like us. (laughs) And we get all of that. We get that forgiveness. We get that hope. We get that newness of life. We get that change when we are united in faith to Jesus. Church, that's not just for beginners. That's for every one of us. Rest in Jesus by faith today for the first time or for the thousandth time. And be changed by his grace. Be changed by his love.
So those are three things. And, you know, it took years, of course, for Paul, Saul, to be able to figure this all out, to be able to start to write about it in ways that made sense. But I don't doubt that these are the things that are rushing through his mind while he's blind and fasting and praying for three days in a room on a street called Straight in the town of Damascus. (laughs) And meanwhile, across town, (laughs) there's this beautiful and strange vision within a vision thing going on with a guy named Ananias. God tells Ananias that he should go and find Saul of Tarsus because Saul of Tarsus has had his own vision where a guy named Ananias comes to him and lays his hands on him so he can regain his sight. And to Ananias, of course, this makes absolutely no sense at all. He knew who Saul was. He knew what Saul was doing to people like him, and he reminds God, God, you remember, right, who Saul is? And then he gets this gentle nudge from God where God just tells him the whole story. That everything has changed. And that Saul is not the man that he used to be. And even though it's going to mean that he has to suffer, he's got a new job. And that new job is to carry Jesus' name out into the world. This is what God's saying to Ananias. Ananias, he has a job just like you. He is a faithful witness. He's just like you. Now this, this Ananias understands, not because it's really easy to understand, but because he too has been the object of Jesus' forgiving grace. Ananias had been lost once in his own particular way. He had been blind once, and now he's found. And now he can see, and he knows that the story that God just told him is just like his own story this true story of the world into which he has found himself inexplicably but joyfully swept up. Ananias knows a thing or two about grace. Ananias knows a thing or two about second chances, just like the first Christians all did, just like you and I do. And Ananias figures, well, it happened to me. (laughs) I guess it could happen to a guy like Saul. And church, this should always be the effect of grace in our lives. There is no one we should ever look down on. There is no one that we should ever trick ourselves into thinking that we're better than. There is no one who is so lost that they cannot be found. God's grace makes us gloriously free to love. So he goes and he finds Saul. (laughs) And the very first words that Saul hears from Christian lips are these. Brother Saul, welcome to the family. (laughs) And something like scales fell from his eyes. He was blind. Now he can see. He was lost. Now he's found. Let me pray for us. Father, help us to see. (laughs) Help us to see that this story, as unlikely, as remarkable as it is, it's our story too. We've been called into the same kind of life from the same kind of life. 
We were lost and were found. We were blind, but now we can see. (laughs) Father, help us to believe that not only with our heads, but with every part of who we are, that we would live into that, that we would begin to be a people changed into people who love in that very inexplicable, inscrutable way that you have loved us. Father, do this for our good and do this for the good of this broken world around us. And we pray it in the name of Christ. Amen.